This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. It's also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Go to helixsleep.com slash weeds and get $50 off your order. And by Wink. Wink is offering our listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. I have no idea what a high-risk pool is. <laughs> I've been confused by this whole discussion. Oh, well, that's why we're here. Yes. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, the policy podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by my colleague Sarah Cliff here in the studio, and also by Ezra Klein from San Francisco. How is it out there? Oh, it's beautiful. It doesn't just like smell like pee everywhere on the streets? That's usually my experience there. No, it, it, it smells like technology, like bites flowing through the air. Oh, really? Have you had some yeah. Juicero juice? <laughs> uh, I have not. I've heard a lot of Juice Era Juice jokes out here, though. That sounds about right. A mixture of people think it's actually funny and also feel somewhat wounded by the coverage of it. Here in the nation's capital, of course, we're, we're far too busy for, for juice. Um, and people uh, ha- have been talking this week about the big uh, deal on government spending that was reached uh, a week late. Um, this is the sort of there's an annual appropriations process. The government shuts down unless Congress affirmatively votes to continue spending money. This year, because of a, a number of continuing resolutions, we have only a five-month year that is going to end in September. What is a continuing resolution, Matt? In a continuing resolution, Congress just says, okay, we're going to keep spending what we had said before for another little while. Uh, So during the lame duck, they did one that brought us through March. Um, When negotiations needed a little bit more time, they did a one-week CR so that there's no government shutdown. But what members of Congress really, really love to do is not pass continuing resolutions, but instead pass a real appropriations bill, because that lets the different members of the appropriations committee uh, mess around with things, right, and optimize so that programs that they like get more money. Money, programs that they don't like get less money. Um, it's also in a in a weird way, like super inside the beltway people just consider it like better. You hear a lot of scoldy talk like Congress hasn't done its work on time and stuff, even though I think from a normal person's viewpoint, nobody really cares if there are there are CRs or, or if there are real appropriations. Uh, but in this case, the military had been getting pretty hot and bothered about the uh, lack Ooh, of a hot and bothered military. Yeah. I, well, this was an important factor in this. So the, the, the military brass had been saying for a while now that they are annoyed by this sort of uncertainty that's inherent in the continuing resolution process, and that it was difficult for them to you know, like plan for their various wars and things. Uh, And actually, all managers in all government agencies feel this way. uh, But almost nobody in American politics cares about what civilian civil servants think about things. And certainly nobody in the Republican Party cares. Uh, But generals and admirals have a lot of juice on Capitol Hill. And so that motivated uh, John McCain and a bunch of other defense hawks to really sort of want to get this done through a regular order process. And that in turn sort of it started shaping a series of events that gave Democrats a fair amount of practical political leverage in in this whole process. And so what you wound up seeing this week was a deal that 
you know, was definitely a big win for the military. They got out of continuing resolution land. They got a hefty amount of extra defense money. They got released from some of the terms of the sequester deal. But beyond that, it was like a huge defeat for the Trump administration's stated priorities. They put out this budget document that called for all kinds of huge cuts to this, that, and the other thing. Basically, none of that happened. They wanted money to build a wall uh, that featured heavily in the presidential campaign. That didn't happen. I heard a lot of paranoia during the negotiations from backbench liberals who were like, oh, you know, leadership, they're going to stop the wall, but they're going to sell us out on some other aspect of immigration enforcement. Uh But that didn't happen either. Um, They got, you know, there's some extra border money in there, but but really not much and not for anything that advocates are are particularly concerned about. Um, Democrats got a bunch of extra money for scientific research. They got the Joe Biden Cancer Moonshot Initiative funded. And Planned Parenthood got to keep its funding. Planned Parenthood did not get defunded. It would be wrong to construe this as like, this is what liberals would do if they ran the government. But considering that you're talking about a Democratic Party that has um, not won that many elections recently, uh, they scored a lot of substantive victories out of a relatively weak sort of uh, electoral base in, in a pretty remarkable way. One of the things that's amazing to me about the CR is just how it does not have a White House footprint on it in any meaningful way. Like the White House, like you said, Matt, they put forward their priorities and Congress kind of like set those aside and we're like, we'll just sort this out and we'll send it over to you. And I was listening to a great interview with um, Carl Hulse, who's the New York Times's, um, I believe either he's their Capitol Hill bureau chief. He was on The Daily this morning, um, kind of talking about some of the backstory here. And he said one of the things that surprised him when he was covering this is that Democrats and Republicans were saying really nice things about each other in the budget negotiation process, which you don't hear a lot of, right? Like there's a lot of yelling about Obamacare and the replacement plan. But he, he was kind of surprised when you would give Democrats the opportunity to trash the White House or trash Republicans. They just wouldn't take the bait. And, you know, the reporting he's been doing suggests that they very much got together on Capitol Hill and worked out a budget deal that they could both live with and, you know, just did not think that the White House priorities were important in any way, like really brushed them aside in like a quite, quite brazen way when you actually look at what gets funding. What I think is interesting about this budget deal is that it speaks to the path the Trump administration and and this Republican Party did not take. So this budget deal, such as it is, I think is evidence that there was a world in which Democrats uh, in Congress would have been happy to work with the White House, with Republican leadership to pass things that are not by any means liberal, but are, you know, they get something, Republicans get something, you know, everybody kind of goes home and and has some kind of a win that this budget deal is evidence that the opposition was not going to be lockstep. Uh, Instead, you see on things like healthcare and some of the other the other projects the White House has been pushing forward on a real effort to not negotiate with the Democrats from the beginning. And so there's no reason for Democrats to come on board and then they go into a, a full mode of opposition. But if I were the White House, I would be looking at this and saying, hey, you know, maybe this is not as intractable as we thought it was. Maybe this is actually a a question of substantively giving them things we don't care about so we get things we do care about as opposed to – 
what, what I've heard from them before, which is the idea that they shouldn't even try negotiating with the Democrats because, of course, the Democrats aren't going to work with them in any way at any point or for any reason. It was also, though, an example of, of something that, that we've talked about before on the show, which is the way that presidential aloofness can be useful, right? Mm-hmm. That. You know, a sort of Washington cliche is always that, you know, it was like, why doesn't Barack Obama lead? And, and you know, you could imagine versions of, of that with Trump. But even though Trump put out this, like, budget plan and made these requests, Congress just ignored them. And the fact that Trump did not make a serious effort on his own budget was critical to getting this done. Because you could imagine another world in which Donald Trump tried to demonstrate leadership on Donald Trump's priorities and spoke very heavily and very frequently about what it was he wanted to do here. And that would have made it hard for Republicans to ignore him on key points. And it would have made it hard for Democrats to give any kind of ground to him. But by creating this construct where it was like, Trump really wants the wall, but then like, Trump kind of ignores the whole process. And then the negotiators just focus on like dollars and cents for these various things, you were able to to kind of go get it done, right? And if Donald Trump attracts so much attention, and the attention is so necessarily polarizing, that it's hard for him or any modern president to like, drive bipartisan compromise. Whereas on Capitol Hill, there's just a lot of different stakeholders involved. And it's completely possible for politicians who have different philosophies and different priorities to sit together in a room and work out trades and work out deals. And it's funny that Trump, you know, kind of portrayed himself at various times as some kind of master deal maker or something like that. But actually, the members of Congress are perfectly good at making deals with each other. And they are better at it when there's less presidential engagement. And one of uh, Trump's great blessings for legislating, maybe that he doesn't seem to really care that much about it and is at times willing to completely ignore stuff. Whereas every time he intervenes in things, it does not appear to be constructive in any way. No. Um, So I want to mention the one thing that surprised me and is like, we're surprising me more about the deal they're coming to. And it is the fact, this is something we talked about on the last episode of The Weeds, the one we did live from Vox Conversations about these Obamacare payments, these cost-sharing reductions, which I had gone into the budget negotiations thinking Democrats were going to go to the mat for. Like, they're going to say, you have to appropriate these. That's the line in the sand. And they didn't. They got reassurances from the White House that they, you know, would continue paying these. The Democrats backed off, and it essentially ends up where we've been the past few years, where there's a lawsuit challenging these, but the White House keeps paying them. That already seems to be having a negative ripple effect on Obamacare. Um, It it looks like Iowa's um, big marketplace insurer is talking about pulling out now that there is uncertainty around these funds. And that would um, it would leave 94 of Iowa's 99 counties without any insurer on Obamacare. So it'd be like the Tennessee situation on on steroids. And I, I'm looking back on it. I'm a little bit surprised Democrats like really didn't make this their thing. Um, and I think what was going on is they felt like they were saying, you know what, Trump's not going to explode the marketplace. He's not going to take them away. But the thing the administration has been doing is essentially waffling on it, saying maybe we will, maybe we won't. And that's making health insurance companies quite nervous. So it's a little bit surprising to me when I look at 
the CR that um, that they are going to not fund this part of the health care law. It actually seems quite damaging to the law. And I'm curious if you are a Democratic health staffer who listens to this podcast and has thoughts on this, please email me. Um, I, I'm curious why Democrats like didn't make that a priority in, in their negotiations for this. Well, one thing that has seemed to me to be a dynamic of these negotiations is both sides did something they don't always do, which is simply say, okay, if you've got a no-go zone, we're just not going to go there. So Democrats, for instance, will really go to the mat to protect Planned Parenthood funding. And there are a lot of Republicans who that is really their key objective in, in these negotiations. But that's just been defunding Planned Parenthood was simply left out, right? Republicans seem to have made a decision that if that was just going to be a place where Democrats would go to complete all-out war, they just were not going to spark it. And it, it looked to me through the CSR cost-sharing reduction negotiations that that was sort of the dynamic there, too, that that was one of those things where Democrats were not going to get at this point at the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress, to do something positive for Obamacare in these in these negotiations and going to war over it was probably just not going to leave them with much. I don't know if that was a good decision or a bad decision, but one reason that this seems so unusually smooth is that we've become used to in American politics in recent years, both sides, particularly Republicans, but 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 sometimes Democrats too, just deciding that even though they knew something was a absolute non-starter for negotiations, they were going to insist on it anyway. This has been a, a constant thing with the House Freedom Caucus, but but you see it all over. And here, it just had a very unusual dynamic where they did what you do in a negotiation, which is you just don't include those issues. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, though, is that I think that the Trump administration's uh, very public efforts to try to say that it's going to use the threat of sabotage as a tool to get Democratic votes for some kind of health care legislation has um, soured congressional Democrats on trying to do anything to save the Affordable Care Act, right? That they're committed to fighting the repeal bill, but that they really want to maintain the construct that Donald Trump is the president of the United States and that Donald Trump should not of his own volition deliberately do things that will engineer worse healthcare outcomes specifically for residents in rural areas and red states that they don't want to make that like an ask right that like Trump has as far as they are concerned the authority to make these payments and they want him to make the payments. They're happy to criticize him for waffling about it and things like that, but they're not going to say that it's a it's a it's an ask of theirs. It's not a favor to them for the Trump administration to do its job of administering the Department of Health and Human Services correctly because Trump has already tried to put it out there as a as a negotiating stick. Um and I think you're seeing, I mean you're seeing with what's happening in Iowa with what's already happened in Tennessee that there are going to be bad consequences of this, right? The the nexus of the administration's sort of maybe kind of deliberately self-sabotaging of the marketplaces combined with the Democrats deciding that they are going to, you know, let Trump hang Trump country if that's what he wants to do is going to make people's lives worse. But it's also hard for me to see what's the other outcome. If Democrats can't be sort of begging Trump to, as a favor to them, like 
do his do his job correctly or it'll put them in an untenable situation with their own constituents and with just their their need to to kind of bargain with things on a consistent basis um and so you know i mean it's it's bad i mean i think i think we've seen a lot of the stories but we haven't yet seen the kind of human consequences of these stories but we're going to over the next year yeah. And well, just one of the things that's weird about this to me is this something like House or, you know, Republican and Democrat leaders agreed on, like going into this, you saw a lot of Republicans saying, yeah, we should appropriate this money and it makes sense. So in a way, it kind of like fit with a lot of the other things that are going on in the budget negotiations where it wasn't Republicans versus Democrats. It was Congress versus the White House, where the White House laid out its priorities, Congress lays out its priorities, and Congress priorities seem to win here. But even though this was on the Congress priority side it did not make it through in in the negotiations and you know when i think of this from the point of view of a democratic legislator i think one thing they're kind of banking on is that this is like a terrible strategy um i think i had one former obama administration you know person describe it to me as they're essentially handing trump a suicide vest and betting that he's not going to detonate but, you know, he's basically saying, maybe I'll detonate, maybe I won't, who knows? So people are obviously, like, standing back. You're not going to stand super close to someone who's saying, well, we're not really sure yet. And it seems like it was a riskier move to give this up than they might have initially thought. We've got some more healthcare coming up, so I'm going to pull us back from the healthcare talk for a minute here, because I want to talk about what I think is sort of an interesting emergent structure between the two parties and what they really and what their bottom lines are in negotiations. Uh, now, I can't say that this will always be true, but really, it seems to me the basic underlying structure of the deal here was that it turned out that what Republicans really want in budget negotiations is more money for the military. And what Democrats really want in budget negotiations is more money for like the basket of things you might call science. Right. It's not all hard science, but 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 it's there. So Trump had wanted, I think it was like a 30 billion dollar increase in military funding Uh and he got 12.5 with which can actually go up to 15 if the military comes up with a plan to fight ISIS. That's a pretty big increase, a $15 billion uh, increase. And then on the other hand, Democrats were really able to stop Trump's Trump was going to cut the National Institutes of Health. In fact, the National Institutes of Health end up getting a $2 billion funding increase. Trump was going to slash the EPA. The EPA now gets a 1% decrease in funding, which is a decrease, but it is nothing compared to what the, the Trump administration was pushing. So I, I just think this is an outside of some of the things I think we're used to seeing argued about in, in politics. I think we're seeing here a little bit of a bottom line on what the two parties emotionally feel most passionate about funding, which for Republicans, they really do believe that Obama gutted the military in, in some powerful way and the military needs more money. Uh, they've not really yoked this to a strategy for what to do with that money, as far as I can tell, but they are giving the military more money. And on the other hand, Democrats really feel strongly that the science and research functions of the government, the NIH, the EPA, etc., like that is core. I think Barack Obama liked to use the term seed corn like that is the future and they they were able to hold to that in a pretty significant way uh and i think this is going to be i think there's something here in this line being drawn that is also useful because democrats by the same token do not really oppose military spending and republicans do not really oppose say the national institutes of health so this is one of those places where unlike in a lot of parts of politics the two parties sort of bottom line concerns are not necessarily contradictory they're just different and that's a place where you can actually have uh positive some compromises it's worth remembering how we how we got here in the first place though which was that years and years and years ago house republicans 
decided that they were not going to raise the statutory debt ceiling unless the Obama administration agreed to big spending cuts. Um, and then the Obama administration decided not to use any of the many, many, many tools at their disposal that would have brushed this threat aside, but to instead embrace the threat as part of a really harebrained scheme to get Republicans to agree to raise taxes. And then that didn't work. And they wound up with the sequester deal in which you had big cuts to domestionary discrediting. Domestionary discretionary. <laughs> you had big cuts <laughs> to exactly the programs that you were talking about, Ezra, right? So Republicans had taken to saying that Obama gutted the military, but it was actually Republicans who gutted the military as their price for raising the debt ceiling. Um, and then the Obama White House had held the line on the view that Republicans could only get their defense spending increases if they were matched dollar for dollar with domestic money. So the big thing that Republicans did win in this deal was that the military spending increase was bigger than the domestic spending increase, which violated a conceptual framework that Barack Obama and his staff were sort of single-handedly keeping in place uh, because the Obama administration, for reasons that frankly baffle me, uh, feels that its whole series of tactical and strategic choices that led down the sequester pipeline uh, made some kind of sense. And so one of the big things that Congress is doing here is just finally throwing all of that aside, right, that Democrats are now saying that what they want is to spend money on things that they like, and that they are not going to refuse to get that done as part of some, like, weird linkage with other kinds of concerns. Uh, Republicans, uh, who used to be insisting on big entitlement cuts as the only way to avoid economic catastrophe, are now saying they don't want to cut Social Security and Medicare either. Everybody back when the unemployment rate was high and the macroeconomic case for big budget deficits was really, really solid. Uh, everybody of both parties claimed to be really concerned about the deficit. Uh, now everyone's just decided that they don't care. And that's part of what makes these deals much, much easier, right? If everybody decides that they don't have any um, trade-offs or things like that, then you can you can make a deal, right? Trump says, oh, I want money for a wall. Democrats are like, no, 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 we really don't want a wall. So you just make a deal on everything else. Uh, back when Obama was president, we had a lot of strictures. There were a lot of people who had, a, you know, big red lines about deficits, about taxes, about parity between defense and non-defense. And with Obama gone from the scene and Republicans throwing overboard all of their uh, alleged ideological principles, it's much easier to get things done. Okay, guys, uh, there's never been a more important time to keep learning to stay informed about the world. And that's why I'm a big fan of The Great Courses Plus, and, and I want you to sign up for it too. This is a fascinating series of video lectures. It's presented by award-winning experts. It's on all kinds of topics. You've got your world history, your economics, your politics, but also less serious stuff, how to cook or, or how to get like more serious about your photography, take really good pictures. Uh, they've got over 8,000 lectures. There's new ones added all the time. It's a, like a tremendous library of learning, and you can stream them whenever. You start, you pick up, you drop off on your smartphone, on your tablet, your laptop, your TV, if you got one of those uh, little boxes that connect to it. Uh, lately, I've been watching the Surveillance 
state, big data, freedom, and you. Cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig uh, walks you through the, the government's role in providing security from threats like digital espionage and hacking, uh, while also, you know, trying to preserve our rights to, to privacy and, and to freedom. It's you don't necessarily think about the whole picture in, in the realm of, of sort of cybersecurity and in the way that that he gives it. I, I've always sort of seen this as as little one slice or another. He he kind of puts the whole thing together for you in a, in a really interesting way. Um, so if you sign up for the Great Courses Plus as a listener of the Weeds, you get a free month by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Uh, you get a free month. Uh, they think you're really going to like it and you're going to keep paying the money. So sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. All right. Should we talk about some healthcare? I love health. Let's healthcare. do it. We, we never talk it? about healthcare. We never talk okay, about healthcare. Okay, Sarah, can I can I confess something to you? Yeah, just well and our our listeners. So I have seen the subject of high risk pools a lot in healthcare coverage. I've seen it a lot on the tweets. I am aware that the smart, high minded, correct thing that people who are like me are supposed to say about it is that high risk pools are no solution to the problem of pre existing <laughs> conditions. But I have no freaking idea what a high-risk pool is. Okay, well, that's that's what I'm here for. So high-risk pools have kind of become the focus point of the Republican um, debate over its own health care plan, which is moving very quickly at this point. I mean, we're recording this Wednesday early afternoon. We've seen Fred Upton in the span of 24 hours go from opposing the bill to supporting the bill. Um, Republicans are actually inching towards a possible vote in the House. So and what a lot of it is centering on is more funding that states could spend on high risk pools. High risk pools are, you know, actually pretty simple. Um, they are basically just covering really expensive patients through a government subsidized program. And there is kind of nothing um structurally problematic about that. Um, you know, there's nothing inherent in a high-risk pool program that would stop it from working. The problem with high-risk pools historically before the Affordable Care Act and the thing that, you know, the people who would give you that talking point, Matt, would say are, are that they're historically very underfunded, that they often do not have enough money. These are incredibly sick people with very high medical bills. And in order to pay them, you, you know, either have to cap the enrollment or put in some lifetime limits, um, not advertise the high-risk pool is actually a very popular strategy to control costs in high-risk pools. So the concern is that, you know, people would be – they would have a place to go, but they would be treated quite differently and not everyone would get in. And I think that is the reason why you hear a lot of the negative reaction and the fact that it doesn't seem like the American Healthcare Act or Republicans' plan is written – really funds the high-risk pools to the level they would need to be funded to work. There are estimates from the left-leaning Center on American Progress and the right-leaning um, American Enterprise Institute that both agree, actually, that there's not enough funding in this bill to, you know, satisfactorily set up these pools. But surely before Fred Upton agreed that this amount of money was good enough to make him comfortable with the bill, he checked with the experts at the Congressional Budget Office to to see what what's what the math is, right? No, of course not. So this is one of the baffling things as we like hurdle towards a vote on the American Healthcare Act is there's still no Congressional Budget Office score on this. So we have no idea how well they would work. Um, the CBO, you know, has scored something similar to the bill that they're looking at passing. 
right now. And one of the notable things about this, one of the reasons they don't think the funding is strong enough is because the high-risk pool funding is in this fund that states could use for one of seven purposes. One of those is high-risk pools. There's other stuff they can do with it, too. It's like literally everything from offsetting the price of preventative care to reducing copays to reinsurance programs. CBO thinks that states aren't going to choose the high-risk pool option, that they're going to put their money towards other programs. Um, But we don't know what they think about the new changes because there's not currently a CBO score on the revised bill. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I want to say something on the high-risk pool specifically. One of the things that is just peculiar about the conversation around high-risk pools is that if you have the kind of politics that would make them work, you wouldn't need them in the first place. If you had a political consensus that was committed to spending enough money on covering health care for people who are sick and can't afford it, you, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I uh, But we probably then wouldn't be having this argument that we're having at all. The issue with high-risk pools is that in addition to them just being conceptually a little tricky to to design well, a lot of different states have tried them before, and they always, always, always fail. And they always fail because what you're doing is you are quarantining out sick people in a space where just what they need is endless government subsidy. And one of the things that I think healthcare experts, if you like, like, stick with sodium pentothal will say about high risk pools is one reason people don't like them is that by segregating the sick out from the market, they reduce their political power. And so a situation where everybody or not everybody, but a lot of people are in the, say, Obamacare insurance marketplaces and you have the healthy and the sick and you have people who are middle income and you have people who are low income. That's a situation where if those marketplaces are being badly run, if the subsidies are underfunded, uh, if there's something wrong, there's a lot of political pressure to to fix it over time. Maybe not immediately, but but over time, certainly. The issue, if you just pull all the sickest people out over into this money pit over here, and then the money pit is underfunded, well, maybe the sick people have you know some amount of political power, but it's going to be a lot less. And, and we've seen that again and again. The Center for American Progress d- does have not – I forgot when it came out. It was a little while ago. But they did a pretty good report on this. And, and they've talked, for instance, about the California high-risk poll, which I actually think is a pretty good example. Because California is a state that has a political consensus that is very pro Universal health care. In fact, one thing California was trying to do before Republicans won uh, the election was get a waiver so they could use their own money to extend Obamacare to undocumented immigrants. Like that is where the California healthcare consensus tends to rest. Um, but California had a high risk pool. And so what they did when they did a high risk pool was to, to manage costs. They created a three month waiting period once you enrolled in it before an enrollee could receive treatment for a pre existing condition. And one thing about that three month waiting period is that was lower than that normally is. So often when you go to a high risk pool, they do not let you get treatment for your pre existing condition for three months, six months, sometimes even more, uh, because they're worried that you're you're going to get a lot of adverse selection. You'll only come as soon as you need a lot of care. Uh, in addition, what California did was they imposed a $75,000 limit on benefits and a $750,000 lifetime limit. They capped enrollment, so there were very long waiting lists. Um, the premiums ended up being pretty high, so a lot of people had to drop out. These They just haven't worked well before, and they haven't worked well before because the politics of them are really bad. They're just like – they're just a place you put money, um, <laughs> and that money just goes away. So, I do, so oh. Yeah. Well, I want to give one counterexample to this, which I think is actually helpful for understanding these, because I think the one example of a high-risk pool that works well right now is the Medicare program for kidney failure for people with end-stage renal disease. Um, Right now, they are allowed to enroll in Medicare, and that is essentially a high-risk pool for people with this one particular costly condition. And that's been running for a number of years. It is never underfunded. It works 
quite well for the people in it. But I think, you know, the difference, Ezra, between that and like the California one or really any state one you're describing, it isn't as much structure. It's just like an unending commitment of money, which the Medicare high risk pool for people with kidney failure has. And every state risk pool we've had um, before doesn't. It's usually, you know, funded by some kind of assessment on health insurers and you're stuck within a particular budget. And that would most certainly be the case with the ones that the Republicans are proposing, which have to live within, um, uh, I think it's about $130 billion budget over eight years at this point and would have to compete with all these other programs. It's not clear they're going to get all that money. So we do have examples of at least one well-funded high-risk pool run by the federal government, but it is the exception. And I think it's instructive that that one has absolutely no limit, no no budgetary limits associated with it. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you about that because I've always heard, I've heard healthcare experts just continuously shit on the Medicare pool for for end stage renal failure. That it's like it, people feel like it was this random amendment that got put into a bill. I don't exactly. I you will probably know this better than I do. I don't know exactly how it's funded, but my understanding is that it's funded like Medicare, and and Medicare is funded as basically an open ended entitlement yes. that does not require. The government to go back every year and yes. reappropriate budget right. money. I think that's so, why it works is because it has this right. unending commitment of but, money but, towards it. But, it, but, but which goes also... almost back a little bit to, to my original point, which is that if you had the politics to just create an unending, like an unending, uncapped entitlement for sick people's health care, I mean, then we could put it in a high risk pool. We can make the subsidies sure. better. Yes, but but the politics we're in feel like they're they're not they're not suited for this. Well, and this is where it's worth coming back to the sort of basics of. Aka and and the politics, which is that there's a lot of argument around the sort of um, structural elements that, you know, how does the Rube Goldberg machine work exactly under Obamacare and how do Republicans maybe want to change it? And those are important questions. I mean, it, it does matter how the system is designed, but the fundamental disagreement between Democrats and Republicans on this score is just about money, right? That the Affordable Care Act spends a lot of money on subsidizing the purchase of health insurance by people with below average incomes. And it raises that money with a lot of taxes primarily falling on individuals with households of over $200,000 and various different classes of of companies, medical device makers and, and others. Republicans want to spend a, a lot less money than that in order to enact a a big repeal of those taxes. And they also want to restructure some of these things. But it's a a little bit of a a shell game, in in my opinion, right? That if what they were saying was, okay, we're going to not change anything on the tax side or on the spending side, but we're going to take money out of certain kinds of Affordable Care Act subsidies and we're going to put it in high-risk pools, that would be an interesting thing to talk about. I personally have no strong opinion on whether that would be a good idea. I I guess I would like to see a CBO analysis. Um, But all of these different things, like we're talking about $8 billion relative to like a trillion dollars in in cutbacks here, and that there's just no way around the fact that you cannot take hundreds of billions of dollars that are currently going to subsidize the purchase of health insurance, plow that money into a capital gains tax cut, and not come out with people having less access to health care, right? And there's like an endless search for 
verbal formulas on the part of Republicans where they can say that they are still taking care of people or people will still have, quote unquote, access to health insurance or they're going to do, quote unquote, something. For or if people you're Donald Trump, you just say you cover everybody when right. you don't it, cover it, everybody. It's terrific. But it's like they're replacing, you know this huge pot of money with this way smaller pot of money. And it means that sicker people and lower income people are going to get less health care. And there's nothing, you know, it, it would be fascinating, I guess, to argue equal dollars. Should we do things less through an insurance mechanism and more through a high risk pool mechanism? But that's not what's happening here. We're comparing like, a huge bushel of apples to like one old shitty apple. And it, it kind of like vitiates the, the whole project as far as I can see. Right. Like that's always going to be the tension in any healthcare effort is like, what do you do with the really sick people? The healthy people are easy. Like they're cheap. They, you know, I think it's the stat is 50% of Americans account for 10% of healthcare spending, but the 10% of Americans who are most expensive take up the two-thirds of healthcare spending. And that's like the people you worry about. The healthy people are just like small, teeny tiny apples that are really inconsequential. Um and you're right. I think it's like a debate of particulars, like of how do you cover those people? Um and I think you generally see right now liberals favoring, you know, less segregating out the sick people, more dealing with it on the back end. If you have a health insurance company who happens to get a super sick enrollee that, you know, you give that insurance company some money in a sort of reinsurance program. Um, but, you know, one thing I was surprised, I've been doing interviews about high-risk pools for the past few um, few days as these have come up again in the debate. And it wasn't as much from kind of the more left-leaning people I was talking to. It wasn't as much a knee-jerk reaction, like, this is a terrible way to do healthcare. It was more of, this is a way we've done healthcare that we've also constantly underfunded and has not worked very well in the past. Different people are different. I'm different. You're different. Uh, we don't like all try to squeeze into one pair of pants or something. It would be ridiculous. Uh, but so much of the mattress world works like that because up until now, a truly customized mattress has cost like five or $10,000 and nobody has that money. Um, so Helix Sleep is the answer. You go to helixsleep.com. You answer a few simple questions. They create a big uh, biomechanical model of your body, it's called. Uh, they've got proprietary algorithms. They have leading experts in ergonomics and biomechanics, and they're going to develop a mattress that is right for you. Uh, if you're in a couple, uh, they can even make a mattress that's different on the different sides so that you and your partner uh, each get exactly what you need. Uh, it's going to get you a better sleep. They're so confident in the fact that your sleep is going to be better that they will give it to you for 100 nights to check it out. If you don't love it, they'll take it away for free and give you a 100% refund, no questions asked. They just really think that if you go to their website, you do their questionnaire, you order their mattress, that you are going to be really enthusiastic about it. Uh, so you just go to helixsleep.com slash weeds. You get $50 off from your order. That's helixsleep.com slash weeds, helixsleep.com slash weeds. I don't actually understand what, to, to use one legislator's example here, Fred Upton's theory of the cases at this point. So Upton is a smart guy. He ran energy and commerce. He's dealt with healthcare before. And, you know, he can put out a amendment, putting a little bit more money to high risk pools. And, and I don't understand what he thinks is going to be saved there. So 
Republicans seem to be in a process or what they're hoping happens is that as bad as this legislative process is, as poorly informed as it is, as herky-jerky as it is, as derided as it is, that at each point, nobody's going to want to be left holding the hot potato. So like the House Freedom Caucus after the bill filled was left holding the hot potato. And so it was like on them to get the potato over to someone else. Uh, so they came up with this deal where states can waiver out of the insurance regulations. They're like, great. All right. We're, we're on board. We don't want to be blamed for killing a repeal in place. So then it goes over to the more moderates and the moderates now have this bill that is just a total <laughs> dumpster fire. And then they come up with this answer like, okay, we'll put a little bit more money into high risk pools so we can say we did something there. And then we'll maybe throw the hot potato over to the Senate. And now maybe the Senate just like throws a potato in the trash, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe they decide they also can't be the ones who stopped repeal and replace from going forward. And so you would go through this process where at every point, everybody knew this was a bad bill, but didn't want to be the one blamed for killing it. Then you would actually have this terrible thing happen where you accidentally, with nobody ever realizing this possibly could have happened, pass this terrible bill. And then you're going to have this day. You are literally going to have a day. It will be one day in time where people's uh, subsidy checks go out or they don't go out, where the insurance markets reconstruct themselves around you know what they think is going to happen. And all of these people, millions and millions of people, tens of like I, we keep using the 24 million number, but I always thought the crazier number was that in 2018, in the original version of the HCA, 14 million people lose health insurance. 14 million in 2018, an election year. And I don't know what Fred Upton thinks is going to happen. I don't know what he thinks of this high risk pool amendment to underfund high risk pools, take people out of insurance they have now, move them to something they don't want somewhere else. I don't know what he thinks is going to protect him from. I don't think they anybody thinks this is a great policy. So I, I, I honestly can't. I, I I cannot model out the theories here. I've been talking to people, and when I talk to them and when I ask them this question, they also do not have something to tell me. They will just sort of say, oh, well, you know, the Senate will figure something out or, you know, nobody's thinking that far ahead. I've heard nobody's thinking that far ahead a lot, which is a scary thing to hear. But I really don't understand what these pretty experienced, savvy politicians think is going to happen here. Like they are just trying to get something so it's not blamed on them that this fails. But if it passes, it will be blamed on them. Wait, and so Ezra, it, are you coming yeah. around to the idea this could this could pass? I don't think so still. I okay. am still pretty pretty low on that. But, you know, you never know. I mean, that is that is what I'm saying is that 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 is the theory they are going off of right now. Right. They have not gone into a legislative process with what they're trying to do is come up with a bill they like. They've gone into a process where one group after the other is trying to pass it back. Um, I don't know if that will work. I continue to believe that the Senate, even if they did get out of the House, the Senate will get a CBO score and look at this and will say, like, no. Um, But I guess you never know. Uh, what I don't understand in all this is what someone like Upton is doing. Maybe he just agrees with me that this can't pass, so might as well not be on him for passing it. But the thing that I could imagine happening is that everybody keeps thinking this terrible thing won't pass, but what they don't want is for it to be on their back that it failed. And so you have an almost like collective action mistake where everybody's individually and rationally doing this thing to not be the problem. And by doing that, they accidentally end up passing a terrible bill and then everybody's and then everybody gets blamed for it. You're seeing here the real profound institutional weakness of the more moderate House Republicans, right? That when when Democrats had the majority in the House, the 
bulk of their members were liberals from safe seats because that's how House districts are drawn. But the Blue Dog Caucus was very cognizant of the fact that it held the pivotal votes and also that its members had the most to gain or lose in any kind of outcomes. And they organized themselves in a very clear and consistent and powerful way. And they really drove the agenda in terms of, you know, what bills were going to pass, what bills were not going to pass, what amendments they were going to insist on, what they weren't going to insist on. Um, in the Republican caucus, the Freedom Caucus is like that. They are prominent in the media. People understand who they are. They articulate demands. They force negotiations. Whereas the more moderate or, or just more vulnerable members are like scattered to the winds. So sometimes they just like lose one, like Ileana uh, Rosletnen just got off the healthcare repeal bus a long time ago, and they have completely written her off. But then others you can pick off one by one in these weird ways. Like you call Fred Upton in, you work this thing out that doesn't appear to make sense. He declares victory and, and off you go. And they don't have any mechanism of standing together as a group, formulating an agenda as a group, and trying to actually drive it. They're instead all in the position of believing that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Rob Portman are more competent legislators than they themselves are, and that they can count on these Senate proxies to do their job for them, which you know, I mean, it, that may be true. I, I do think that those senators are more competent legislators than the House Republican moderates who have had years to come up with some kind of strategy and, and simply failed to do it. But it's a it's a curious kind of game. I mean, you're up there on Capitol Hill. You've stood for election multiple times over the years. Um, you'd think you would want some kind of theory of what if our party obtains concurrent governing majorities and me and my similarly situated colleagues hold the pivotal role? What is it we're going to say and do? Like, what will we want? What will our red lines be? And they just didn't, like, do any of that. So Paul Ryan kind of shat this thing out in their laps. They knew it was a problem, but they, they've never, I mean, in this whole past month, they've never, like, established what like, like, what are they after? Like, what, what is the point here? Upton seems to have gotten for themselves the ability to say in a press release that he got the bill changed to do more for people with pre-existing conditions, but he hasn't actually done anything. Well, in like a weird way, you know, like Ezra's, you know, how he was talking through, no one wants to be the one to kill it, but they all like aren't like super jazzed or don't want it to pass. The the Upton part is just like it, it makes no sense to me, like what it is he is doing. Um, he is giving moderates cover to join on the bill with a super tiny amount of money that doesn't really move the needle. If you, you know, the people I've been talking to say this, you know, this eight billion doesn't change much at all. We're talking about $8 billion extra for high-risk pools it is not going to be the thing that, like, all of a sudden, like, the CBO is going to say, oh, well, now everyone has coverage and there won't be any coverage loss under 
this bill. So he's adding on this. I liked. I think it was Dan Diamond at Politico has started calling the calling it the Michigan morsel, and I I want to make that a thing. Michigan it's, morsel. It's tiny. It's like this tiny <laughs> thing that doesn't do anything, but gives cover to people who want to join on the bill. And they're they're still doing this all while there's no CBO score. And like the thing that seems the most insane about this to me is that. You know, they might take this vote and it might pass. And then the CBO is going to come out and say however many million people lose coverage under this bill. And the bill probably won't move through the Senate. So all of a sudden the House has taken this like incredibly tough bill, it's just or incredibly tough vote that is just fodder for attack ads, particularly for people in tough, more moderate districts, all for nothing. Like, I, I just don't understand why someone like Fred Upton would would cave on this $8 billion provision went like he clearly articulated what he thought was wrong with the bill and the thing he got does not fix it in any way. Wink. Uh, you guys know Wink. Uh, it used to be Club W. Now it's called Wink. It's, it's a great new design. It's, it's a great new product. What it's all about is it's about customized wine recommendations being shipped directly to your house. It hooks you up with, with innovative, affordable bottles of wine that you are going to love. Uh, the, the, the pitch you know they want you to think about right now, because we've been talking about Wink for a long time, is Mother's Day. Uh, you know It's hard to come up with good gifts, uh, but Wink could be a really great one. It could be a, a Wink membership that gets personalized wines for your mom shipped right to her door or it can be something like a beautiful gift box uh, they've got great stuff out there that's you know it's thoughtful it's personal but it's going to be useful and and one of the great things about wink is that you know by its nature it's always personalized so that you know your mom if you get the stuff for her she's going to wind up with wine that she likes not with the wine that you are vaguely trying to guess that she likes uh, which is which is really 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 helpful they partner with different winemakers all around the world so there's all kinds of stuff in their selection uh, but if you go onto their website, trywink.com, you can take a brief palate quiz, and they're going to add to their whole kind of library of different grapes, different vintages that they have to offer. They're going to recommend interesting wines that are customized to what you like. You don't need to be a wine expert. You just need to be able to, you know, speak about, about what kind of flavors and what kind of tastes you have. Uh, so you're going to get stuff that's customized to you like you might from a really high-end place with really, really expensive bottles, but you're going to get it in an affordable price because they're working directly with with winemakers and cutting out the middleman. Uh, and so right now, they're offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. They even cover the cost of shipping. Uh, you know, I can tell you it's it's just it's really great and convenient to have a box show up full of wine that you know that you're going to like, but that you haven't tried before. So that's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash weeds to get $20 off your first order now, plus complimentary shipping, trywink.com slash weeds. You know what I do understand? What's that, Ezra? This week's white paper. Oh, great. We're going. All right. So we have a white paper. It's great. It's NBER, as, as is typical for us. Um, so this was a paper I was quite interested in that kind of tries to measure the effect of some abortion restrictions we've had recently. It comes from some um, economists in Texas, as well as one at Middlebury in um, Vermont. And the thing they look at is this bill HB2 that Texas passed a few years ago. It was this abortion law that essentially closed about 
um, half of the clinics in Texas. And this created a really good natural experiment to look at what happens to abortion access, what happens to abortion rates when you have fewer abortion clinics. And the thing they're trying to look at in this paper is distance. Um, how much distance do you need to create to an abortion clinic to the point where people just don't go? And the finding I was pretty interested in here is that they find um, if you move the distance of the nearest abortion clinic from 25 miles to 50 miles away, it doesn't really change anything. People are just as likely to get abortions. The abortion rate stays the same. But when you move an abortion clinic from 50 miles away to 100 miles away, the abortion rate goes down 16%. Um, you move it 100 miles away to 200 miles away, the abortion rate falls 32%. Um, and if you go to over 200 miles away, then the abortion rate falls in about half. Um, and so I thought this was an interesting way to quantify something that a lot of abortion um, cases at the Supreme Court deal with. Um, there's this standard that the Supreme Court uses when it decides um, abortion cases, and they look at abortion restrictions about whether they put an undue burden on the woman. Um, and this definition of undue burden is constantly coming up if you look at Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey and all the really big abortion cases we've seen, they're always talking about, well, what is the burden on the woman? And this is actually bringing some data to that. This is saying, you know, if you create a small increase in distance, if you have some abortion clinics close and, you know, a slightly more travel, that doesn't seem to be a burden. It doesn't seem like there's fewer abortions. Um, but if you kind of get up to the 50 miles away, 100 miles away, range, then you really are changing the access people have. One of the things I'm curious about with this paper to see, you know, how it is received by pro-life groups who, you know, might be really excited about these results. They're actually showing that this law in Texas um, was able to reduce the abortion rate. And I will say there's other data, not in this paper, from other researchers that has found the number of unintended pregnancies went up. So it does not suggest people are getting pregnant less or having less sex. It just suggests they're having fewer abortions when they do become pregnant. But it really is the first paper I've seen that kind of quantifies the relationship between distance to an abortion clinic and how much that distance has an effect on what the abortion rate is in a given area. So I would characterize what this paper says as the abortion clinic closures are having the effect that the people closing the clinic wanted to have, right? I mean, that, that's what this is saying, that this is a, this appears to be an effective way of cutting the overall number of abortions. People are not able to do a one-to-one -one substitution and just go to another state. I mean, that's expensive. It's very difficult. Oftentimes people don't have the transportation or the time from work or even the knowledge necessary to do it, that it is in fact a, an effective strategy to reduce abortion by attrition, um, to just, you know, come up with these laws that say all these clinics do not follow our regulations for women's health. They're not clean enough. Their closets aren't big enough. All of the doorknobs need to be stainless steel, but instead they're, you know, a, an aluminum composite and get all these things closed. And you actually do have some version of the effect that pro-life folks want to have. Right. I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the, the, the legal standard forces everyone to play these kind of like weird triple games where like you have to say oh i and all of my anti-abortion colleagues with the backing of all these anti-abortion advocacy groups just passed this law that 
abortion advocates say will drastically restrict access to abortion, but that's totally not what we were trying to do. But clearly it's what you're trying to do, right? And 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 so I mean one other charge that I think you could frequently raise against measures along these lines is that it won't actually do anything to reduce abortions, that you are merely creating annoying, humiliating, expensive hoops for women to jump through uh, to no avail. Uh, but in this case, it appears that there is a real purpose to it, right? That if you are someone who thinks that abortion is murder or other serious wrongdoing, and you really passionately want to drive down the quantity of abortions in the United States, but you cannot, uh, under the Supreme Court rules, make it illegal, that we are now seeing that if you make people drive far enough, they will, in a statistically meaningful way, uh, not go do it. And this strategy, you know, works, right? I mean, that's, that's something with meaning. It is also interesting and important that this strategy does not appear to, uh, in a forward-looking sense, induce more conservative behavior on, on the part of people, right? I mean, I think a thing that social conservatives would like to be true is that if you really crack down on the availability of abortion, that everybody would have sex less, uh, particularly outside of marriage, and that there would be many fewer pregnancies. Um, but I think in a number of different things that we're able to study and look at, we don't see that kind of effect, that that the unplanned pregnancies still happen, uh, that the you have uh, more more children being born by by women who don't feel that they're in uh, uh, financial or, or other circumstances uh, to, to raise them effectively. And, you know, I mean, to, to me, I, I don't see what benefit there is to reshaping society in this way. But but that's like, where these strategies park us. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm curious with a paper like this is how it ends up factoring into how the Supreme Court thinks about abortion, which is an issue they're frequently asked to revisit. Um, one of the interesting things they note in this paper is that, um, you know, the Supreme Court has taken its best guess at what a undue burden of distance is. Um, there was in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a case in the early 90s. It was a big abortion case. Um, Supreme Court Justice Alito, he said that he thinks it's up to 150 miles, that if women have to travel up to 150 miles, that's fine. Anything above that threshold would be considered, in his view, an undue burden. And But that seems to be something he's just kind of coming up with a little bit uh, on the fly. And this is really the first time that some data has been brought to this. And this is something in a lot of different ways that abortion law has had to grapple with um, science in Usually in looking at fetal development and looking at, you know, when when can a fetus reasonably be expected to survive on its own, which is a benchmark that keeps changing as medical technology advances and kind of challenges the rulings from 40 years ago, where we had a lot less ability to, you know, deliver extremely premature babies than we do now. And I think one of the hard things for, you know, doing jurisprudence on abortion is that you constantly have a lot of the rulings really do rely on science in a lot of weird different ways, like everything from like how far of travel is an undue burden to, you know, at one point can a fetus be expected to survive on its own? And those, you know, scientific decisions, they they matter to how the Supreme Court is deciding abortion law. And, you know, I'm curious to see if this, this seems like a paper that could easily end up cited in an abortion case in the future as, um, 
it's a paper that could, as Matt was saying, you know, both embolden abortion rights opponents a little bit by suggesting, hey, these bills actually work, but also give um, abortion rights advocates a stronger case in the court saying, like, look, clearly, like, this is creating an undue burden on women. All right. That's what we got. (laughs) Uh, This has been another episode of The Weeds, a policy podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thank you, as always, to my co-hosts, Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias, to our producer, Bird Pinkerton. Um, You should be checking out I Think You're Interesting, the new podcast by Todd Vanderwerf, also on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It is a wonderful network. And we'll be back either next week or, depending on healthcare votes, maybe even sooner. 